Anyway, yeah, welcome to Echo Church. We are a church that uh, basically, we're, we are a church plant, but we uh, are a church that emphasizes the idea that, you know, if we're going to talk about love and peace and joy and justice, then we're going to live it out. These are uh, principles that God speaks through his people, and we are an echo. We are a resonation of, of what he has done. And we're made in his image, and we're given these hands and feet, and so we're going to put them to good use. And so that's sort of the, the general DNA of our church. Um, anyway, we, we welcome you to this Sunday. I have a few announcements before I dive into uh, the series that we're in, and I'll explain that in just a second. The first one is this. Um, we do have the Pure Desire, um, I'm sorry, really it is the Pure Desire program, but Burn the Ships is a, is a program that's citywide, and it's basically a program that addresses sexual addiction. And I've been connecting with a number of different pastors. We had a conference recently, the Pure Desire Conference. And from that, we have all sorts of different um, connections. Uh, Zootown is putting a group on the ground. River of Life is putting a group on the ground. And then I'm going and slapping the hands of several pastors this week and telling them to get busy, you know, putting stuff together. But uh, we will have another men's group that's going to be starting soon from our group here. And uh, I'll, I'll keep you... Um, informed of that. But in the meantime, I also want to make sure that you understand we have a women's group that is on the ground, and they meet right upstairs, 6 p.m. or 6.30? 6 p.m. on Thursdays. 6 p.m. on Thursdays, right upstairs. Listen, when, when I invite people to a group that addresses sexual addiction, I know that seems a little incriminating, right? It's like I'm not, I'm not pointing at you and saying, oh, you have a sexual problem, you know, it's not like, you know, and that's weird, right? And everyone feels kind of creepy being asked, should I go to this particular group? Listen, you're sexual beings. You were made that way. You were made that way, right? There's no shame in that. But that also means that Satan's going to attack, and he's going to turn something that's beautiful and holy, and he's going to turn it on its head and turn it into something that's evil and ugly. All of us have that tension, inside of us just because you're invited to a group so that you can become stronger doesn't necessarily mean that people are looking at you laughing about you pointing your finger at you or anything like that doesn't mean that you're some sort of a freak all right so i just want us to start to to recognize okay that that's not what we're saying so i encourage all of you uh join either a women's group or a men's group because we're trying to get them on the ground all right Second thing, uh, lots of people have been texting me, calling me, sending me Facebook messages, carrier pigeons, about a Facebook post that I, you know, that I, that I put it online, and essentially, I needed prayer, and I needed it in a major way this past week, but I couldn't exactly explain all of the circumstances. However, since you are Echo Church, I'm going to give you a little bit of insight. Here's the problem as a leader. You don't want to lead people on too much and craft the vision of what you're pursuing if it's still in jeopardy of falling apart, which this is. Can we make that clear? We are looking at a building, all right? There is a building that we're looking at, and I met with the owner on Friday, had a very important meeting, because in the past when I have um, approached people or when several of us have approached other owners of buildings, when we're talking about leasing out a space, we're not necessarily interested in having a church building. We are looking for like a warehouse space or something that could be utilized throughout the week, right? So in the past, I've approached different owners, and three times I've been told that they are not interested because we are a church. There was um, a time about two years ago, and I'm not going to tell you where the building is. I'm not going to tell you who the owner is, but I was speaking with him, and he said, 
so what do you intend to use this space for? And I said, well, actually, you know, we're a church. He goes, nope. Just like that. <laughs> he like turns around. And, I, and I'm like, he goes, not interested. And I just couldn't believe that that just happened, right? And so it's important that we find somebody that we can be very transparent with. And so I met with the owner of this space. And it's not like he was enthusiastic going, yay, that kind of thing. Because actually he had hoped that the space would be used for possibly a nightclub, maybe a bar or something like that. Uh, and so I go in and I'm like, what do you think of Jesus being in your, you know, it's like, <laughs> he was okay with it. He was okay with it. I explained the vision of it and everything else. And so I feel like we have sort of a green light. The, re the listing agent uh, contacted me and said, you know what, we'll be sending papers over soon with some numbers. We're sort of waiting for some uh, inspections to happen and then we'll, we'll go ahead and begin to negotiate. So your prayer right now should be that we have wisdom, right? And that we negotiate with wisdom. We don't move too quickly, but at the same time, the space, get ready for it, it's downtown. It's downtown. Now listen, for some of you, you're like, oh my goodness, are you kidding? That's a deal breaker right there. For some of you, you're like, woohoo, I don't have to drive as far. You know, that kind of thing. Listen, on a banner back there, it says that we have a love for Missoula. The center of the Missoula culture is going to be found downtown. It's also very central in the sense that you can reach it from north side, west side, sawmill district, university. It doesn't matter. It's kind of central in that sense, right? It's a fantastic location. So I'm really sorry if that turns you off or you're like, oh, I can't believe the parking. No one's there right now. It's a Sunday, right? You'll have plenty of parking, okay? But pray it up, all right? Pray it up and, and keep that in your prayers. And that's all the information we're going to give at this time, but we'll continue to just roll it out. We're definitely going to, we want to make sure our church knows about this kind of stuff before anyone else. And so as you learn things, I really encourage you, don't just splash it all over social media until we're ready as a, as a family. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so what are we learning about? We are talking about Jesus. We're in the middle of a series, and the series is called Knowing Jesus. And that's actually a very loaded phrase. Because what does it mean to know somebody? I began this particular series talking about a communication class that I took in high school that said, if you're really going to communicate, first what you have to do is listen. You have to become really good in terms of listening. Now, all of us are fantastic with sending, right? It's like we just want to talk, 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 and we want to send all sorts of different messages to all sorts of different places. But when it comes to the actual process of listening and receiving that, we have some work to do. There's noise that kind of comes into the channel. So when it comes to knowing Jesus, what's the noise that gets in the way? How do we draw closer to Jesus Christ? So week by week, I've kind of been breaking things down in terms of the culture that, the, that Jesus lived in at that particular time. We've talked about some of his heritage. We've talked about the fact that he is a man. In fact, he's 100% fully human, walked on this planet, had skin and lungs and a heart just like the rest of us. But he was also God. What is that? What does that mean? And so we've, we addressed that as well. We talked about the fact that he was tempted, just like we were. Uh, that he also uh, had to struggle, at least to some level, with sin. He had to struggle with the fact that God would leave him. And the, and the devil knew exactly where to aim. I, I said a phrase to you, and I hope it stuck, and that was this. That sin is not abstract. It is particular. It is specific. It is specific to you and you and you. It's like specific to each of you, right? That should create some sense of empathy inside of us when we see others struggling with something that we don't struggle with, right? That's not cause for judgment. 
That's not cause for us to compare and say, well, what's the problem? Why don't they just stop, right? Just stop, right? Because for us, that would be simple. But for them, that sin is particular to them. And it demands our sympathy and empathy, right? And so in the same sense, Jesus was, was, uh, was tempted. So I asked my father to kind of walk us through some of his early Galilean ministry, and, uh, and I, I trust that he did. I've heard a lot of good things. Uh, sorry that I was sick last week. But this week, I want to talk about something also very specific. But I'm going to start in John chapter 3. Where I'd like to park at is, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. But for now, just to sort of introduce this, we're in John chapter 3. And what happens is this. There is a Pharisee that comes to Jesus. Most of the Pharisees are kind of jerks. They really don't want Jesus around, right? They're doing everything from trying to catch him in some sort of a crime or saying something wrong to killing him. They, they really would just love to kill him and be done with him. But Nicodemus is one of these people, and he comes to Jesus at night in secrecy. He doesn't want the other guys to know. He's like, i got to talk to him because something's stirring inside of him. And so he approaches Jesus, and he begins to say, you know, many of us, we already know you're the Messiah. You're doing things no one else can do, right? And then Jesus immediately goes into this cryptic phrase about being reborn again. And, uh, and so Nicodemus says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he's already old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answers, yes, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We don't even quite know what that means, okay? Like that's a very loaded phrase. And Nicodemus then says in verse 9, he says to Jesus, well, how can these things be? And you, you, can tense, you can sense Jesus is getting frustrated. Or maybe he's surprised. In fact, commentators are all across uh, the page on this. Maybe he's saddened, but this is his response. He says, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? There's like an expectation that Jesus has. Nicodemus, you have the law in your hands. You don't get this? You don't know where I'm going with this? And I've always thought that was a little, you know, he's being a little tough on poor Nicodemus. <laughs> the guy's trying to ask some, some basic questions, but Jesus alludes to something. I, want, I, want, I don't want you to miss this. What does he allude to for Nicodemus? Besides the fact that he feels like Nicodemus is maybe an idiot or, or something that's blocking him. What is he alluding to? He's saying, there are some central truths that are tucked away in the old law. They are within reach. You've had access to them, and you haven't touched them. I mean, think about that. That's, that's essentially what Jesus is, is referring to. He's simply saying, this stuff has been inside the Old Testament law. We're, really, we're always really tough on the Old Testament law. You have to remember, even Paul, when he writes to the, the church in Corinth and 2 Corinthians, he's going to tell them, hey, listen, that law, the Old Testament law, that was glorious. When, when it was engraved in stone and Moses brought it down, his face was glowing. Like there was glory in that law. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, he's like, there are some truths inside of that law. And now, how will they come to the surface? I mean, if you can't see it within the actual law, right, and you have experts in the law, how is Jesus then going to bring those truths to the surface? I mean, 
if, I mean, think about it. If he's God, he could easily find some more tablets. He probably even knows where Moses went if he wants to go back to Mount Sinai. He could inscribe the fulfillment of the law. Why doesn't he do that? Do you realize that there is no systematic theology in your New Testament side of your Bible? Romans is as good as it gets. But even that is written in a letter. Right? But it could have been. So what does he do? How is Jesus going to bring this to the surface? And the way that he does it, it's very clever. You probably already see where I'm going with this. He does it with these things called parables. And, and parables are, are, are funny things to me because they frustrate, and at the same time, we think that they're kind of childish, that type of thing. Uh, we have a, a Bible study at the LGBT Community Center, and, and one of the ladies there uh, a couple months ago, she, she was like, I just, I hate parables. I don't understand what these things mean, you know, that kind of thing. And that's legitimate. That's legitimate. L look at the way that Jesus presents them. And so my question to you is, is why would he do it? Why have parables instead of just writing it clearly out for everybody to understand? I mean, what's the whole game that he's playing with all of this? Why keep it a mystery? Apostle, the Apostle Paul writes, we speak of the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of, for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew about. Well, flip over to Matthew chapter 13. So Matthew chapter 13 begins with a parable. It's going to be filled with parables, but we're going to kind of break it apart and move around all over the place. But here's what, uh, here's what Jesus says. He spoke a parable to them. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like the yeast that a woman used in making bread. Now listen, when you guys are going to make bread, you're probably going to go to the grocery store. Now I'm guessing. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You'll go to the grocery store. You'll actually buy, what, a jar? Is that what it is? A jar of yeast, right, that you can put inside of the dough? All right, that's not how this worked. This was usually a lump of old fermented dough, which is a little bit gross. It's probably, yeah, it's very sour. It, it, it's going to be a little bit moldy, and it's definitely filled with bacteria. Um, and so they would take this piece of lumpy, moldy, gross dough, and that would be the yeast. But this is what Jesus said. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like that. It's like this yeast. And even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour. Now, when you read three measures of flour, don't think cups. It's not cups. It's about eight and a half gallons worth of flour. So that's the equivalent to a peck, all right? So it's about it's this massive amount of flour. But she takes this tiny bit, and she tucks it away inside. She probably stays um, or, uh, right before evening, and overnight, perhaps, it then permeates every part of the dough. That's it. That's the parable that he gives. And what's the point that he's making? You see, when Jesus would give a parable, there'd be some sort of meaning, even as he's telling it, and he hasn't even told them, can you guys catch the meaning, right? The people are already thinking. They're like, where's, where's he going? I, I mean, is this a cooking show? What, what, are we, what are we doing here? All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. He did not speak to them without a parable. In fact, some commentators will tell you that after Matthew chapter 13, all teaching from Jesus, whether it was listed or not, is going to have some sort of a parable inside of it. But what's the point? He said, this was to fulfill what was through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Just as that lump of yeast has been tucked away inside of eight and a half gallons of flour dough 
there is something that's been hidden as a mystery. It doesn't mean that you can't comprehend it. It just means that you haven't seen it yet. And it's so powerful, it will spread throughout. And it will spread throughout the kingdom. It'll spread throughout the earth. It'll spread throughout all of creation. This is how he will communicate so many truths. And I think it's fascinating. I don't think we recognize, I don't think we appreciate the brilliance of the parable. Because think about it. If that's really what's going on, that he's going to take these foundational principles that were already in place before the world was even created, he's going to tell a tiny little child's story, and that's how he's going to bring it to light. They haven't known him for thousands of years. He gets mad at Nicodemus because he hasn't recognized it. This is someone who's like uh, has a scientific approach about the law. What a brilliant strategy. So let's look at this. I think there are several reasons, other reasons, um, that are also u- that Jesus uses as he's bringing these things into the light of, of, of the world. Uh, I'm going to go through five, and I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. I tried to whittle my notes down, and I'm not going to tell you how many pages. I'm just going to go really fast. Um, number one is this. Parables gave his enemies no ground. No ground. What, what, what are his enemies doing? Luke chapter 11 tells us, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile, really, and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him and something that he might say. We're waiting to catch him. But all he would do is tell these little child stories. And they're like, mm, okay, well, mm, all right. I don't see anything wrong with a pearl that's found. You know, it's, I, I, he would use this kind of stuff that I think would kind of keep them aloof. And he would deliver really, really difficult truths. And you know, I mean, it would stir things up inside of them. But many times, it would be encased inside of a parable that was so cryptic in some ways that they just simply wouldn't catch it. So let's, let's before I get any further, let's make sure that we define what we're talking about with a parable. A parable is a little story, right? Basically, it's a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It has some characteristics. For example, it's different from a fable. A fable will usually use you know, animals, sometimes inanimate objects, plants, forces of nature as characters. Jesus' stories always use humans as the characters. Typically, the, the, the humans didn't have a name, but that's not always true because he also talks about Lazarus, right? So it's kind of difficult to put it in one specific category, but he would use these earthly stories. But there were some other characteristics that made them very unique, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Only certain people could hear these, these stories. The parables were not considered to be evocative. I mean, they were evocative. They were not provocative, if that makes sense. That's a quote that I that I read I liked a lot. Parables are evocative but not provocative. Jesus would make certain points much clearer to the true-hearted people, the ones who were ready to hear it. So he has his enemies over here, but think about their hearts. Their hearts have sealed off their ability to hear. And then over here, he has people who are ready to hear. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? I keep going back to this. At the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we call it the Beatitudes. He's like, hey, listen, there are those of you here who are poor in spirit. You're about to be blessed. There are those of you who are hungering and thirsty for righteousness. I mean, think about the people who are sitting at his feet at that time, readying themselves to hear these, these particular stories. But he would say a story like in Matthew chapter 25, you have a parable of the ten virgins, and I'll go through it really fast. The kingdom of the heaven is, it will be like ten bridesmaids, or virgins, 
who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish, they didn't take enough oil for their lamps. The five who were wise did take enough. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they fell asleep. And at midnight they were aroused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come and meet him. And all the bridesmaids got up and they prepared their lamps. And then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give some of the oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We, don't, we barely have enough for all of us. I mean, we, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy the oil, the bridegroom came. And then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut and locked. And later when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I do not know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. It's a simple story about a wedding, but what is Jesus saying in this story? Who, who's the bridegroom? Him. It's representing himself as who? Essentially as God, as the Messiah, with, with this kind of power and this kind of glory, and it's going to be referenced in Revelation chapter 3. Like, he has this capacity. Okay, how would the Pharisees take that? Not well, <laughs> right? It'd be blasphemous for you to equate yourself on the same level as God, but through this little story, they barely recognize it. Hey, listen, their hearts are closed. They're listening to a story thinking, all right, when is he going to get to the good stuff? In the meantime, those who actually are listening and able to hear what he's saying are filled with hope and wonder and awe because they clearly get what he's referring to. The fact that he will be the one who returns. That he will be the one who accepts people in and closes the door. And the Pharisees have no clue. It gives them absolutely no ground for any type of a, an argument or an attack. Number two. Related to that, and as I, already, as I already said, he could then, on the flip side, if his enemies had no ground, on the flip side, he was able to target those who did have the right hearts. I've said this several times. I believe that the, the purpose of John the Baptist when he was on this earth was to prepare the way, but the way he prepared was he went to the people and he said, repent, repent, repent and be baptized today. In other words, all the stuff that you have been doing that you know you shouldn't be doing, repent of it. There's someone who's coming, and he's greater, far greater than me. In fact, I can't even stoop down and untie his sandals. He is the Messiah. So if you want to get ready, then you've got to let it go. Let go of your materialism. Let go of your jealousy. All these things and repent of it. What is that doing to the heart? It's softening the heart. I believe John the Baptist prepared the way, not just by proclaiming the Lord, but also preparing the hearts of those who would listen. Because Jesus, when he spoke parables, those would hit directly into the hearts of those who were poor in spirit. Those who were hungering and thirsting for righteousness, they're, just, they're starved for it, they're waiting for it. These parables would hit directly, right in the center of their hearts. Those who were true or pure in heart, it says they would see God. I think the parable of the sower illustrates this, and I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase it just to keep moving, um, but it, you'll find it in Matthew chapter 13. It's the first one at the, at the very front. And essentially, uh, the, the, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside a road. The birds came and ate them. Some of the seed fell in the rocky places, but that doesn't have much soil. 
So immediately it sprang up, but because there was no depth, it was very shallow, all the plants withered away and died. And then some fell along the thorns. And as they came up, the thorns also came up. But see, the thorns then suffocated and choked out the plants that were being brought up. And then some fell upon the good soil. It yielded a crop. In verse 8, it yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So he who has ears, let him hear. He's describing the conditions of the heart. He's describing the kind of heart that isn't, it's not even going to allow the seed to take root. He's describing the kind of heart that gets so excited, but they haven't taken care of the other issues and the idols in their heart. And just like the thorns that they have, it'll come up and choke it out, right? He's talking about what it means to be shallow in the faith. He's saying all these things. And then he's like, he who has ears, let him hear. In other words, who's listening? Are you listening? Those who are ready would be able to hear. It's a brilliant concept. I, I believe that a, a parable is essentially a, uh, a measure of truth. It's a measure of truth found in a simple story that only those with humble hearts would be able to hear. Only those with humble hearts. I think humility, penitence, these are the things that would prepare. Now listen, that was for the people then but that's for us now. That's for us today. And it's not just the parables. How many of you, when you're opening up your Bibles, how many of you, you don't like reading the Scriptures? You know, it's really difficult to get people into the Word. Many times what we'd rather do is just sort of go online and find out what people's favorite Scriptures are because those are the easy ones to understand. But what about the difficult stuff? Is it possible that sometimes there's a correlation between what you're reading in Scripture, the difficulty and the frustration that you have with understanding the words of it versus the condition of your heart? I think so. And I think so because of my own experience. When I'm filled with my own pride, when I'm filled with my own distractions, my own idolatry, how receptive do you really think I'm going to be with the word of God. Not just the parables. Number three, parables, an aspect of parables and perhaps why Jesus would use them is it created challenge. It caused people to think. And I love this because I relate to this on so many levels. I love to cause people to think. And I, I love raising boys that now um, they've kind of, I don't know, I'm just going to say I think it's in their DNA. I, I, I don't think there's anything I did to influence it. But they, they have this, this piece of DNA that now challenges me, right? <laughs> and, I mean, Cole is turned into just a world-class debater about things, you know, about whether or not he should drive while listening to music. You know, whatever it might be, Right? He will create one of the most beautiful constructs uh, of an argument and challenge me with all sorts of different thoughts. And same with Miles. Miles is also very logical, etc. And McKenna's getting there, actually. Uh, so all three of my children. But listen, I love being challenged, and I love being able to challenge others, and I get a sense that I think Jesus had sort of the same sort of, I don't know, tendencies. Because guess what? Sometimes a person's heart would be sensitive. Sometimes a person's heart would be soft but it would still be difficult for them to understand. Think about the disciples. The disciples are sitting around his feet. I mean, they earnestly want to understand. They earnestly want to follow him all the way to the cross, especially if you're Peter, right? I think their hearts are pointed at him, and they still struggle trying to understand some of the, uh, the challenges. 
And I think in many ways, I think this is one of the elements that created a type of intimacy, a type of knowing that was unique. You got to think that Jesus is going to understand they're not going to quite grasp something. Even in this particular chapter, chapter 13, they don't understand it. And, and perhaps what happens is, is this. They come to him and they say, and I think rightfully, okay, could you explain that one? I, I, don't, I don't get that one, right? You know, it doesn't bear fruit. What? I mean, what, why would, you know, it's like all of these different, different thoughts. And I think Jesus is saying, sure, let's, let's talk about it. Why don't you sit here and let's discuss it together? In fact, in some ways, I would say this might be a front door for Jesus to welcome them into that immersion experience that I've been talking about Sunday after Sunday. If you want to draw closer to people, if you want to connect with them, communicate better with them, what do you have to do? You have to immerse yourself in their worldview. The reasons that they, the, the ways that they think, the way they do, the conclusions that they draw, all the rest of it. And I think what's happening is you see the disciples drawing closer and closer to Jesus being able to say, I don't understand this. Can you please explain it to me? And they begin to have this type of a conversation. Think about Matthew chapter 7. It says, uh, in verse 13, it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. That's it. You know, pass the potatoes. <laughs> and they're kind of like, Wait, what? <laughs> you know, wait, so show me where the gates are because I don't want to go through the wrong one. You know, I mean, that's the end of the parable. And what's fun about this particular parable is you have to think about what? Which gate am I going through? Which gate am I supposed to be going through? Not only that, but what does that mean exactly in, in terms of the kind of gate? What, what constitutes a gate? And what kind of destruction are you referring to? This is the kind of challenge that they would have. I looked up the most challenging parable. You can do this yourself if you like. And, and kind of took a, a poll in terms of what people were talking about. The most challenging parable that Jesus taught. Any guesses? Those of you who are familiar with your, your Bibles, what do you think? I can't hear. Which one? Fig tree? That was listed. I found one that was even more controversial. Dad's just dying to raise his hand. I know the answer, son. Yeah. The unrighteous steward. Yeah, the unrighteous steward found in Luke chapter 16. And we don't have enough time for me to go through it, so there's your challenge. You should go read that one and then uh, try to understand what's happening uh, in that particular parable. Make sure that you pray first. The fourth thing is this. Parables will invoke, and I already miss, uh, referred to this, it will invoke a necessary choice. Not all of them, but many of them would. Come back to Matthew chapter 13. What is Jesus saying? The disciples came to him. They're like, why do you do this? Why do you speak in parables? And Jesus said, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. So therefore, I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You'll keep seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. Their ears scarcely hear. They've closed their eyes, and otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. In other words, there is an option to return 
and he would heal them. And now they also are faced with that choice. There's a, a, a decision that they get to decide. Will we humble ourselves and listen? Or will we not humble ourselves and not listen? And what, he, what Jesus is saying over and over, he's saying one leads to life and one leads to death. And those are your two choices. He, he goes through this again, and it's a very long parable in Matthew 25 where it's the parable of the sheep and the goats where he starts off by saying, the king will say to those on his right, come, those of you who are blessed by the Father, you'll inherit the kingdom that I prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he, he explains why he chooses them. And he places them over here, and those are the sheep. And then he also says that there are those of you who not only did you not fulfill those expectations, you did the opposite. And for those, you're goats, and you, you're over here. And now you've got this challenge. Oh, well, wait a second. Which one am I? Wait, how, how do I become the right one and not the wrong one? And what does that even mean? And so you're once again faced with this particular challenge, not just challenge, but you're forced to choose. Will you be one of the sheep? Will you be one of the goats? Will you be held accountable for the decision that you make? And so the fourth thing, like I said, is that there is usually an ability to choose. And then the fifth thing is this. Ultimately, Jesus spoke parables to bring life. Now remember, the very beginning parable that I gave to you, the yeast, right, that's in this big thing of flour. We're talking about the Old Testament law. Or the, we are talking about the law that had already been given, these, this, these principles, right? The scribes, the Pharisees, and even the Jewish people believed that they found life the law it made sense you know you do these things the commandments that he's given and as a result of that you get to live eternally it, the life that we are longing for the salvation that we are yearning for is found in keeping that law perfectly we have to do that and that's where we find life but is that true The reason I like to bring it up is because I think we fall into the same trap. John uh, records in, in chapter 5, Jesus says these words. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Just a fun fact. All the parables that you read about are in the synoptic gospels. Pop quiz. What are the synoptics? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are no parables listed in John. This comes from John chapter 5. He's referring to the fact that what? You think your life is in the scriptures. But is that really where it is? So even today, I, here, here, this is a tricky, tricky message, and I've tried to figure out, all right, how am I going to deliver this? Because I don't want to downplay the importance of having your Bibles, Right? We want you to study your Bibles. We want you to read your Bibles. We want you to be inside the Word. But is the Word itself going to bring life? What does the Bible say? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God, that's the Greek word logos, which is talking about the truth of God Himself. It's kind of like the engraved truth. Is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That sounds good. 
It's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What incredible power, right? Ephesians chapter 6, this is the armor of God, right? Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This word of God is not logos, it's the rhema. The Greek word rhema, which is essentially the spoken or breathed word. It is an ongoing word of God. But is that really what's giving us life? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read these words. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. He said, you, however, continue in the things you learned and, be, and become convinced of knowing from whom you learned them and that from your childhood, you have known the sacred writings. What are the sacred writings? The Old Testament. He's referring to the old law that Timothy knew these old law, which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. But that's not where Paul puts a period. He then says this, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The word of God, all scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. But is that what's bringing you life? If it's not, then where do we gain life? Scripture says in Matthew 16, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, for the sake of Jesus, will find it. John 3, 16, God loved the, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus said to him in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. I've got a slew of other verses that I can give to you. Is it possible that in coming closer to Jesus Christ, through the challenge of the parable, through the teaching that he would give, the simplicity of it, coupled with the fact that, guess what? There's this deep embedded truth that you haven't seen until now, and I'm going to shine it so that you can just wash yourself in its light. Is it possible that parables bring us into a closer essence of what it means to live, truly live, far more than just trusting the letter of the law, the Old Testament law? What happens when we put our faith in that? I've seen it. I've watched it. We result in a life that is legalistic. We result in a life that is bent on, did I do this correctly? Did I do this, you know, absolutely with all perfection? Because if I didn't, I really want to know because I don't want to lose whatever life that I know I'm, I'm, I have through that. Our human nature drifts towards that kind of conclusion. Dad, when I point at you, that's your signal. He always asked me for a signal, and this time we were like, I'll just point at you. He's like, yeah, that's best. <laughs> Here's what I love. Whenever my father will uh, come up here and, and preach a sermon, many times I'll have people, they'll say to me, you know, your dad did good, and he did this and this and this. And in my mind, he's, he's like uh, the master. It's like he takes the word of God and he sees 
so much of how it's put together and constructed, and he, he kind of can take it apart as though, you know, like when you're a little kid and you take apart a broken watch or something, right? He can see how it all fits and ticks. And I love that. But a comment that I also hear is, you two, you preach so differently, right? And I love the fact that, you know, we have in our midst the, the older partain that is this scholar, and he breaks down the word of God. And he helps us to see exactly what Paul was trying to explain to Timothy, that, listen, this stuff is so rich, and it will lead you to the life found in Jesus Christ. But then on my side, what I love to do is tell a story. I love to share the word of God in a way so that you can maybe taste it and that you can feel it and that you can imagine yourself. Maybe you're sitting right at the feet of Jesus Christ and you're sitting there in such a way that he tells this silly story about leaven and stuff and you're confused and you're like, oh wait, oh, right, I got it. And I feel like the two of us kind of side by side create a, a very interesting multi-dimensional way to approach approach the Bible, to approach truth. I believe that through story, there's tremendous power. You have story. In some ways, you can take a story and you can change it and mold it, right, as the author. In fact, an interesting thing happened last night where I got to watch a very, very good movie. It's called Saving Mr. Banks. I highly recommend it. It has to do with Walt Disney and, and, and some other things, and I'm not going to get into it and, and give away too much. But I'll say this. It was so fascinating that I wanted to actually read the real story because it's based on a true story. And the, and the difference is this. One story you can change the ending to, but the real story, you can't. And it was fun to sort of see the two parallel each other but that knowing that, you know, it'd be nice that perhaps I had the power to change my own story in a, in a significant way. Is it possible that you have been living in a story that you don't like how it's going? Is it possible that you have already had stories in your life that didn't have exactly happy endings to those particular chapters and you would do anything in the world to change it? Jesus Christ, that becomes possible. You can't make up a story on your own of who you are. But in terms of how your story will play out, to surrender yourself into the hands of God, into the hands of Jesus Christ, allows the author who has that capacity to move things so that every story here not only brings glory to God, but results in a life that is so fulfilling. I'm tired of us always talking about salvation as if that's the ultimate goal. It's a goal. It's sort of like the icing on the cake, but guess what? You get to live right now. And it doesn't even matter how bad your story has been up to this point. If you allow yourself to let God and Jesus Christ become the author of that story, it will result in something far more enjoyable and glorious than you could ever imagine. And I love that. And I love the power of story. I love the power of the parable and how Jesus would bring these truths to us. 
But know this truth today. Your story, it can change. Your story can have incredible meaning and incredible depth if you would just allow him to write it. Pray with me, great God, I thank you. I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for my father and I thank you for the way you made his brain tick and the ways in which he finds such delight in your word and he, and he breaks it apart. And I thank you, Lord, that you have given me this crazy imagination, which I blame on my mother. And I just, uh, I thank you that you allow me to explore story and, and, and give story and give challenge. And at the, uh, at the same time, Lord, we look at both pieces and we see how it creates such a wonderful multi-layered approach. Lord, I thank you for the stories that are here right now. I thank you for the stories that I have heard from individual people in this room. I even thank you for some of the tragedy, even some of the trauma, because you have the capacity to take it and to flip it upside down. You have the capacity, Lord, to take whatever story that we've allowed Satan to write, to, to, that we've allowed our own selfishness and uh, self-focus and our own idolatry, our own materialism, whatever it has been that has polluted our story, that has taken our story in a different direction that we didn't even want, that you have the capacity to rewrite it. Lord, I thank you for the stories that we call parables. I thank you for the truth that is deep inside. I ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts so that we can read those stories and understand what Jesus is not only speaking to these people at this time 2,000 years ago, but specifically to me, to each of us, to all of us as a church. Lord, allow the light of Jesus Christ to permeate this city in dramatic ways. A special prayer on this building that we're looking at, and God, you're in control, so I'm just going to surrender it to your will and allow myself to trust it, and the leaders here allow us to trust it. And then, Lord, I ask that you just be glorified. Just take us where you would have us be the light that needs to be in the darkness. I thank you so much for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Jeff.